This week is part three of our Seriously series. Considering how we respond in faith to a world that confounds us, confuses us, makes us angry and upset and sad and, and generally just makes us throw our hands up and go like, really? Seriously? I've mentioned the last two weeks that every day may seem like a new challenge and like the bleeding is leading in most news cycles. But this human discord is not new to now. Humans have been rebelling against one another for centuries and centuries. And our faithful God, oh, our faithful God, has been sending servants to call us back to God for centuries as well. Call them prophets. Servants like prophet Micah, who reminded the Israelites when violence and disaster loomed large in their lives that it does not have to be this way. Destruction and devastation, hatred are, are not inevitable realities. There is a way to turn the tide of time. All we have to do is remember to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. To understand the prophet's words specifically, we've broken them apart and we've looked at each of the components in more detail alongside the words of Jesus, who said he came to fulfill the words of the prophets. The first Sunday in August, we considered justice, and we talked about how justice is not our understanding of justice, but God's understanding of justice. And it's about an ongoing struggle in community for liberation of all. That's the way we see abundant life. And then last week, we considered loving kindness and mercy, hesed and agape. Remember those words, these ideals that are, are more than just words, more than just how we use them, but about deep relationships with people. Loving kindness is about loyalty and is evidenced by fruit, by changed lives it produces. It is an invested love that remains and endures. And this week we're talking about the last call, the call to humility, probably one of the hardest this day, and yet the most vital. And we're going to examine humility through one of Jesus' teachings in the Gospel according to Matthew. We're going to begin in the 18th chapter, starting with the first verse. As you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of the Gospel. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child whom he put among them and said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. This is the word of God for us, the beautiful and beloved people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, here we are to worship, here we are to bow down, here we are to say that you are indeed our holy and our worthy God. Hide this, your servant, behind that cross, so that everything that is said and everything that is heard comes straight from you this day. Our rock and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The greatest in the kingdom of God is humble like a child. Humble like a child. Have you hung out with any children lately? Young children especially? (laughs) The school teachers back here. (laughs) Yeah. Last weekend, Jeremy and I attended our niece's third birthday party. It was held at a gymnastics facility in Woodstock, and there was probably 25 little ones, all under the age of five, descended onto this facility. Most of them had not seen anything like it, you know, with balance beams and trampolines and foam pits. So when they ran around to each of the pieces, of equipment, they were bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and their curiosity was in full force. They would ask somebody what this is, and you'd tell them, and then they'd go and they'd proceed to try it out for themselves. No inhibitions. Jumping on trampolines and swinging on ropes into foam pits, running and tumbling all the way. Better yet, when there was someone else, a certain other kid on a certain station, They'd stop and say hi to each other. You know, just pause for a second. Say something like, hi, my name is Lillian. What's your name? And then they immediately start bouncing on the trampoline together like they had been friends for years and years. The biggest smiles on their faces. It didn't matter that they were just moments before they did not know each other. They were there to have fun and explore, and nothing was going to get in the way of that. Jesus, in the gospel lesson, places a child among the disciples. I love this note. People don't notice this all the time. He called a child whom he had put among them (laughs) for a purpose. And he says to them, be like this child, be humble like this child. Jesus is speaking and living in a very Jewish community, a community who knew a lot of the other scriptures. They were a community living under Roman occupation of Palestine and were in many ways feeling oppressed. They wanted a savior, a messiah, a king, victorious, riding a white stallion to come and save them. They wanted the Messiah that the psalmist spoke of in Psalm 2, 
when he said, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. I shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like the potter's vessel. They wanted a Messiah like the prophet Daniel spoke of, where troops of the prince of God come to destroy the city. It shall come with a flood and it shall end in war. Desolations are decreed. Yet in this part of Matthew, Jesus is correcting the record, so to speak. He's saying, I think there's been a misunderstanding. God has not sent that kind of Messiah, that Messiah you want. He sent more of a suffering servant, like the prophet Isaiah prophesied. Isaiah says, for he grew up before you like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with affirmity. Yet through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish, all shall see, all shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The will of the Lord, Jesus says, is not coming in expected ways. The kingdom of God is topsy-turvy. And you need to learn, not from the oldest among you, but from the little ones. From the little ones, you need to be humble. I love the way the great African-American theologian, the Reverend Dr. Willie James Jennings, describes humility. He says, humility is to be a learner, to be curious. I don't know how any more curious you could get than a young child in that why phase of life. You know the phase where they start asking questions about anything and everything. Why do the birds chirp and the dogs bark? Why is the sky blue? Why don't dinosaurs, or that niece that I mentioned before, as she likes to call them, sores? Why don't the sores no longer exist? Why is the person lying on the ground outside that building? Why does Johnny speak differently than me? Why do people get sick? Why do grown-ups cry sometimes? There is this desire to grow in young children. They're rapidly developing the connections in their brain to make sense of the world, and unlike adults, they are free of much of the judgment many of us have carried from years of life experiences. We think we know all the answers to the whys, and so we stop asking the questions. We stop trying to develop the new pathways. It's like we've built a puzzle and then we've glued it down, right? We've made the pieces work and we, we don't want to pick them up again to re-examine them for fear that we may have misplaced a few or there could be another way to put the puzzle together all together. Humility is about being inquisitive. 
Our society today is full of fundamentalists, <laughs> on the right and on the left, the religious and the not-so-religious. We're entrenched in our beliefs that we have no desire to learn anymore, to learn other ways of being. We like to assume that we are right and that our way is the only way. We make judgments about other people and their beliefs. We've stopped asking why they believe what they believe or why they think that's the best step forward for this organization, this church, this government, this culture. Frankly, <laughs> we often assume their naivete or their stupidity before examining our own biases and our prejudices. We'd rather avoid the hard conversations and awkward encounters than be transformed by them. I think it's so sad that adults don't walk around like little kids and asking other people their names and say, I want to be your friend. <laughs> In fact, if a stranger walked up to you on the street later today and said, hi, I'm so-and-so, can we be friends? Most of us would be like, you've lost it a little bit. Instead, we sit in the waiting rooms and the lobbies and on the MARTA trains and buses and we don't speak to one another. We put in our headphones. Yet the best pastors and leaders, Mr. Bill, I know adopted a childlike spirit of concern for others. They're curious. They frequently walk up to strangers and ask about their lives. I attended a celebration of life for a childhood mentor of mine in Rome, Georgia, this past Friday, Miss Jane Fleming. I will never forget, she always stood, never missed a Sunday, by the elevator of the Wilder Center. And she'd introduce herself to every person who walked in those doors. Hi, I'm Jane. What's your name? If they had kids, she'd ask them if they wanted guidance to the nursery. If they had youth, she would direct them to the youth room. If they looked like they showed up by themselves, she'd ask, do you want to sit next to me? Or do you want to come to Sunday school with me? Jane had this childlike spirit that freed her up to find joy in anyone's company. Christians who know this childlike faith are interested in others. They show up in unexpected places and they don't assume to have all the answers, but instead preach from their questions. I'll never forget the first time I met the Bishop Karen Olivedo. She's the resident bishop now of the Mountain Sky Episcopal area of the United Methodist Church. It was well before she became a public figure as she is today, before she was even bishop. We were sitting in a committee meet room at General Conference in Portland, Oregon in 2016, and one of her co-committee members was irate that they were letting gays into the church and that they were wanting to marry and get ordained and fulfill a call, and she was venting all of this directly to Karen. She eventually paused as if she wanted Karen to respond with something. You could tell this woman was keenly aware, unaware that Karen herself was a married lesbian pastor of the um, 
one of the large denomination's largest churches, Glide Memorial in San Francisco, the only female senior pastor of a top hundred church at that time. And Karen could have easily gotten angry and defensive. Yet what she did next I will never forget. She asked calmly as a counselor would, why do you feel that way? Where do these strong beliefs come from? Never once revealing anything about herself. She didn't make it about herself in that moment, but sought to learn more about the woman in front of her, the child of God in front of her. She knew, I think, the call of humility was one of keen interestedness in the other. Instead of a situation blowing up or turning in toward anger, it turned toward peace, toward understanding, toward a future together in hope. Never once did Karen compromise herself either. She did not make it herself less she just decentered herself. I think this is an important note about humility. Sometimes people think that humility. So, well, so sometimes people. How do I phrase this? Sometimes, especially people in places of power and privilege, they like to make humility a, a tactic of control. They equate it to submission or subordination. They use it as a tool of oppression, right? Be humble so that I might be great. Yet humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Let me say that again. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not putting yourself down or letting others put you down or saying you're less than others, not worthy, but rather thinking about yourself less. Not pretending the world revolves around Jay, around you and only you. In fact, humility requires a great deal of self-awareness and self-confidence. To know your worth does not come from others' perceptions of you and that you don't need to tell everybody how smart or wise or successful you are. Because God already knows that. To walk humbly is to be at peace with yourself and in your own skin. Last thing I want to say about humility is that humility requires great vulnerability. Jesus placed a child among the disciples and said, be like this kid. He didn't say be the biggest or the strongest or the fastest, but be this child because they have a lot of courage. Go back to that puzzle metaphor I used earlier for a second. It takes bravery to be able to say, I might not have this puzzle exactly laid out all correctly. To take a few pieces out and consider them again. And pulling one piece out might cause you to have to take a few more pieces out. 
and then your puzzle has some holes in it that need to be filled. Meeting new people can be scary. It can open us up to hurt. Asking questions can force us to wrestle with difficult realities. But as we do, we build those new heart muscles, new ways of being in relationship with one another. When we walk with this childlike humility, our frustrations become curiosities. Our inabilities become opportunities, and our anger becomes peace. We are more interested in the big picture, in God's picture, than our own picture. Jesus said, the greatest in the kingdom is not the one with the most degrees, the most prestige, the most wins under their belt or wards in their trophy case. No, it's the child or the one with the childlike faith who is inquisitive and caring, curious and vulnerable, the one who walks humbly with their God to the end of the age. This is the call and the message for us as followers of Christ this day. In the name of the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sustainer, Amen.